I'm Derek Weekly, and welcome to episode 112 of the Weekly Weekly Podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us um, on wherever you join us, YouTube and all those other spots, Spotify things. Um, thank you very much to, to Porik for coming on last week. Porik, uh, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. It's, he wrote a book called This Day in Irish History. And it's a fascinating book, uh, really accessible to people of any ages, but it's just, I, I don't know, I, I kind of discussed it with him of how he managed to fit so much information into such small spaces, and it 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 fills so much, and you you could fly through and read it all in like a few sittings, or you can dip in and out as a, as a coffee table book, so, uh, Porik, thanks very much. And we got to talk a little about, about uh, his time in Vancouver and stuff like that, which is, uh, apparently when he goes to work, he sees superhero things being filmed, so... If you're into that, go to Vancouver. Um, but thanks for your support during the week, as always, for all the stuff we put up. Um, and we're going to get into this week's um, episode. A, a tough introduction, because this man seems to have done a bit of everything. Uh, but he has done podcasting, uh, Mother Fuckler, the very popular Mother Fuckler. He's also the author of Mother Fuckler and Crack Baby. And he's also the man behind at the Irish Four on Twitter. Uh, Derek O'Shea, how are you doing, Derek? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me, Derek. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, petrified of uh, the Irish language, and we are going to talk about why, um, and to a man who's very, very passionate about it. I think this has been something that's, I wouldn't say it's been kind of, I haven't been nervous leading up to it, but I've, I've certainly been a little bit worried about my uh, fear of just reading things wrong and, and like even as far as as your name even though your name isn't it looks more complicated than it is you know that's the thing people there's always an element of anticlimax and people find out how it's pronounced <laughs> yeah well do you know that that's another thing and we will get into it because silent letters and stuff in the in the the irish language is, is for, to me it's i don't know all these things were kind of new as i was reading your book so We'll get into it, but we'll start, uh, Derek, with uh, a short history of your upbringing, please. Yeah, sure. Um, so I um, I grew up in Rathfarnham in South County Dublin, and a kind of sort of normal uh, suburban house in, and yeah, that during the eighties and nineties. So uh, I, I was a middle child, and ended up marrying a middle child. I'm, I'm not sure that there's a significance there. There probably is. I think um, both have a overdeveloped sense of unfairness. I think, okay. Yeah. Which I think often happens. Um. So yeah, I think uh, that I went. Um. I went to a local school, which is um, a primary school in St Mary's, which where you know I met a lot of people. And then I went to a very different um, secondary school, which is called Gonzaga in Ranala, which was a kind of a rugby school, and 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 had a very um different sort of environment. I didn't know anyone else going in, whereas I felt everyone else seemed to know people. And I remember around that time, that's when. I had always thought I was good at Irish in primary school. And then I found that there was a, it, was a, it was a very kind of academically competitive, high pressure environment. And suddenly I felt like I started getting a very strong sense in there of not being good at anything, including Irish. And it's a, and that was a, probably not a, not a great thing. And that's probably, um, but then I, I suppose I, I somehow survived secondary school. Um, I wouldn't say unscathed, but you know, some, somewhat scathed. And then yeah. I went to UCD. I, um, I think like a lot of people, uh, when I finished my leaving cert, I thought uh, I'll never need to speak Irish again. Mm. And I did English and history of Irish in university. And yeah, and then I went from there. And so, and then I suppose I came back to Irish later in life when, um, when I wanted to know why it mattered so much to my dad. And also, I suppose, and yeah, during my 20s, I found when I had um, girlfriends and friends from other countries and, um, and mates from other countries, 
they'd always ask about Irish language. It's one of the first things they asked about Ireland, the same way if you, when people meet Italians, they are, or, you know, or French people, they'll, when people meet Germans, they ask about the military service that you do mm-hmm. when you're, when you're in your twenties, or when people meet Italians, they ask about, you know, cooking and things and maybe military service too. And when people, if, you know, it's one of the first things people ask Irish people when they're abroad is about the Irish language. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to hear, um, you'd speak about going back to the Irish language because I think a lot of people have that idea, you know, it's, it's a nice idea that we all have that to think that we will do it, but yeah. we eventually think it's kind of a lot of hard work, <laughs> you know, so it's yeah. kind of, you did, you went and did it. Well, I think it, it yeah, it, it is. I mean, there's the elements of hard work and I, don't, I think it does come down to what, what a person's goals are. And I know when um, I was thinking recently about how a lot of people um, actually understate, people will tell you they haven't got a word of Irish. And they say, well, what about Banya? You know what Banya is? Go, yeah, okay, I have one word. And you know what Madra is? And suddenly you realize, okay, maybe you have 10 words. That's 10 more than you said a minute ago. And then maybe you actually realize you recognize 100 words that in when you see them. And then you actually realize you, re- you recall more than you do. And people often say, you know, I came out of school with perfect French. And I have no Irish. And I was like, really? So you read Le Monde, you know, regularly <laughs> on, the, on the website, you can name a, 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 one French politician who isn't Emmanuel Macron. Mm. And, and, then, and then you find actually, you know, people um, oversell their ability to speak French and German and fairly <laughs> dramatically. And they seriously undersell their ability to speak Irish. So let's say, you know, it's, um, it might be better than you think you might. The first thing that people actually do go back is they're surprised how much they remember. Yeah, that's that's fair. And I actually knowing this interview has been coming up and speaking to people about your your books that I've been reading. It's really fun to kind of hear that conversation back and forth about people who are quite well, like quietly confident that they would be able to have a conversation. And then others who would just probably a bit more like me, you know, but um, obviously we'll get into that. But uh, Derek, when did you first become aware of mental health? It's a, a, it's a good question, because I think when, um, when I was small, no one ever talked about mental health as if the phrase in the 80s it was just, I mean, it wasn't a phrase that was used. And even in the 90s, I remember that when we, we were watching the Rose Tree as a family, you know, the, when the American Roses came on, almost half of them, if not more, would be saying they're doing studying psychology. And people would, <laughs> like aunts and uncles and cousins, oh, psychology is if it was the most American thing you'd ever yeah. heard in your life. It was a big punchline. And then I suppose... I became slightly in my teenage years, I started becoming aware of, I mean, um, maybe I, without using the phrase, I became aware of the idea that a huge amount of pressure in school, leaving certain pressure and also the, the um, various so, um, social pressures, you know, particularly the pressure on young men to, you know, um, ha- um, have as much sex as possible, you know, and lose your virginity as early as possible. All these things. Um, I no, never had an umbrella term that all these various pressures were actually physically, having an impact on me and on my friends, but I started becoming very aware of it without actually using that phrase. And then in, um, in sixth year, the leaving search year, a friend of mine attempted suicide. And, and then we became, we had a actual talk or headmaster just had a talk with the whole year about what this, you know, meant. And, and I think even then there was a sense, the idea that whatever, that what, what, what we were internalizing it, the, it, no one ever thought maybe this, the amount of pressure that we're putting on ourselves isn't a thing. It was kind of a sense that who is responsible for, you know, making Johnny feel this way and those kinds of things. It was, it, they still couldn't get to the point. And I remember thinking, but maybe we should all talk about how, how close lots of us have felt 
to that and the various things that contributed to that and made ways of pulling ourselves back from that other than drinking yeah, and other than toxic masculinity and other than saying it'll be worth it when you get this many points in the leaving. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting actually that um, you say about, you know, people may have come close to, you know, taking their own lives and it's, it's I'm sure the figures are so much higher than maybe we believe or, or, or that are out there because there's still probably some people who wouldn't want to speak about it in, in uh, maybe feel shameful about it or, or, or see it as a weakness or something. And I think, you know, having these conversations with, with different, and I, I'd say this in the podcast a lot because it's a question that I always ask and having the, the different viewpoints from the different, uh, you know, age demographics and things like that mm-hmm. is, is fascinating to me to hear, uh, you know, the different ways that people heard uh, um, about it. And, you know, uh, these things have to be constantly discussed and you know brought up and hopefully they will be and we'll, we'll carry on doing it um what made you uh, want to set up the podcast in the first place well i think the podcast was i'd always enjoyed podcasts in particular i found that the um the possibilities of podcasting as a medium were so free i mean you'd listen to radio and think, right, a lot of even when you had good radio interviews you'd find you know, it'd be nice if they spoke for a little bit longer or mm-hmm. they didn't have ad breaks and then when I, I started listening to suit the, all the big podcasts that everyone knows, like This American Life and things like that, I remember thinking this would do very well. And then when I, when I discovered kind of the Irish podcasting scene, like shows like Juvenalia and and some of Tony Rose stuff on the Tortoise Shack as well, I remember being really impressed and thinking it it, it wasn't completely out of my reach. You know, those the American podcasts they've got like twenty producers and they've got a lot of them. Um, high production values mm-hmm. and and incredible resources and then you realize actually is there are people who just go out and do it and then yeah. so when i was um and after i'd been a guest on juvenilia i was talking to them about how they how alan mcguire was made his show and and they, they he was talking about you know how they they booked up a number of guests and they talked about them he had a very simple classic concept mm-hmm. and i think i wouldn't mind doing a show like that for myself my one of my instincts was that i the Irish Four have been going for a couple of years. And at this point, I knew my book was going to be coming out. I actually announced the Mother Folklore Republic being published on the Juvenile podcast. And, okay. and I thought, you know, it would be cool to maybe do five or six episodes, a bit of love, a bit of laugh. And I was, I was really anxious about being interviewed on, on, on television to promote the book or being interviewed on the radio. And, and then I thought, it, you know, recording a podcast might be a bit of a media experience. Yeah. And then, and that's what I thought. And so that, that was part of my motivation. And uh, I had a couple of ideas. And I thought also that, you know, the, the Irish Four, I was, I was conscious that the Irish Four had gotten very popular. It had actually gotten more popular than some official Irish language institution accounts. And I was, I felt at that point, like on one level, I didn't really see it as a success. I saw it as being like, um, I felt like, what's that guy again? Um, Gary Newman, you know, mm. had, having two two fingers on a keyboard and making more money than a guy who kind of was a, a lead pianist with the yeah. uh, London Philharmonic or something like that. And um, so I felt like this is, um, I, I have the opportunity to take the Irish Four's brand and audience and introduce them to people who actually know a lot more than me about Irish. Like, and I found, so some people I've been in touch with were like Gary McAvoy, who was doing a PhD at the time in, legal issues related to minority languages, including sign language and Irish, and had mm. um, taught Irish and, and studied Irish and law. Uh, Padro Kavonig, who is the co-founder of Papageltot, and who had also studied Irish at, at a postgraduate level. And Imer Duffy, who was a, who 
who I've become friendly with, who had, had given me some advice in the old Irish stuff in the folklore, and who was also um, had finished, done a thesis in that area. So I thought between old Irish, Irish and legal issues and and some of the Irish literature issues, I thought that we had a, a pretty good team. Um, Olama Jacodoni as well helped out and, and shown you with some of the early episodes. And I felt that I had a pretty good opportunity to have a high standard of um, discussion about Irish language issues that I haven't thought about because we, when you've got like a, a very good quality program on writing a Gaelic talk discussing and you have outstanding journalism, even like now they've found uh, Ukrainians, Irish-speaking Ukrainians discussing the issue over there and Irish-speaking uh, Russians discussing those kinds of issues. And whenever there's actually a global issue, they do actually find someone like in, in Palestine who speaks Irish and they get experts uh, from, a, from a very high standard of conversation. But for people who don't speak Irish, what you don't get people say is, what's the deal with the letter V? Is it in the, is it in the language or not? And, and those kinds of things. I felt that while some of those things are a little bit silly, they actually do, they, they create a nice little opening where you can discuss a range of issues. And that's something I wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, did you know, because I, we often talk about, and I often think back to um, school and learning Irish and it being, you know, I know school isn't supposed to be fun, fun, fun kind of an idea, but I remember the Irish language uh, or the Irish classes, I should say, were, were would be quite daunting for me in particular. Mm. And, when something is like that, when you're terrified, and I, I, I still am like that when I see Irish written down on a page, I'm still quite, you know, I don't know. It, it's like there's like a PTSD mm-hmm. that's over the top. But you know what I mean? The kind yeah. of there's an anxiety behind uh, and it takes you back. And there's not, you know, you don't walk around seeing equations uh, on paper. And it, so mm-hmm. you're not going to get panicked about that. So I see it with Irish. So when I was listening to the podcast, uh, there, there's you had yourself and, and all the people you had on and, and all the other hosts on it. Um, fascinating inter- interviews, but in a fun way, in a way that people can kind of get, get involved with and, and kind of like laugh along with, but also learn. And I think it's the same with your books as well. There's 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 a, a fun and funniness that runs through it amongst all the kind of educational stuff. And I like I guess the question was going to be, why do you think it was so popular? And I hope I didn't just answer the question. For you. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, I, I'm, I'm very grateful that it was as popular as it was. And I'm grateful that it got to that stage. I think for me, like I, I felt that, that I mean, I was lucky that there was a, there was an actual growing interest in the Irish language, but also the, a lot of the positions like where in the noughties, you'd have a lot of um, uh, opinion pieces, un- largely unchallenged about you know, how everyone hates Irish, how everyone hates PEG, how girl schools are elitist and and borderline racist and all these things. People And well, they, these would either go unchallenged or they'd be overchallenged by, um, by, by, by individuals who maybe um, didn't maybe read, read the room. And whereas I felt that maybe there, most people actually, a lot of people don't hate Irish. Maybe people feel wish they spoke more, but the actual amount of people who hate, hate Irish it's quite small when you poke them you realize they you knew it's there's often um another issue there uh, which i guess it and then so and i found that like but the big thing was there was there was an opening in the market for the books and the podcast in that there wasn't really like an english language form, format for discussing the irish language and while i think yes yes i mean it's, it seems hypocritical or weird or wrong to discuss irish and english but if we if you don't you 
give the other guys the you, you surrender unconditionally to the people who don't like Irish at all. Yeah. And when you actually said, well, here's a place. And if someone's, if you're on, if someone's like listening to this on the train at 10 past five and they think, or and they hear, or they hear Sharon Yvonne on the radio saying something about how, how Irish is fun. And I think, oh my God, I am. Um, Maybe I should go back to Irish. I mean, you're not going to switch straight over to writing the Celtic Dark, yeah. but you might switch over to Motherfucker, or maybe you will eventually arrive at writing other thing, writing Litha, and 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 reading notes and all those things. And so there was a, there was definitely a place for a staging table, and there was definitely a space for challenging those kind of daddish, you know, uh, think pieces about how Irish was. And because I think we were we were just very lucky that that space was empty when we arrived. Yeah, absolutely. And th- there's always there has to be a, a, an awkward question. Um, <laughs> but like, do you have like a couple of episodes that you look back, not necessarily your favorite guests, but, you know, a couple of best episodes that you're most proud of? Yeah, there's a few episodes where, where that I'm, I'm particularly proud of. I think um, when early on, maybe it wasn't it wasn't production wise, it wasn't great, but the um, when Gargine decided to told me she wanted to do an episode talking about her experience with learning Irish with dyslexia. Um, I found that I, when we were doing that, I realized that rather than just being practice, media media training practice for me, this podcast had the potential to be something very special. Mm. That was definitely, um, that was a moment when I realized that. And I think when we had an episode about PEG, where we had a number of listeners kind of in, in, include their own thoughts in a montage at the end, I felt that was a very powerful taste finding and really glad of how that one turned out and i think also just i felt that like having um, Sinead Burke on was, was 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 really wonderful as well she was a particularly special guest we had a really we had a really good run of guests there um in um, at, at the in the kind of um in during the pandemic where we had um a, a few episodes which i thought just were in a row which did very very well but i think i an episode we got a lot of talk back from which a very positive response from was the one called hot gale summer where we actually took some of the critical articles about irish in a we put them in the context which was that they were silly season paper filler articles we and we just just very um you know mostly calmly not entirely but mostly calmly dissected what they're actually saying and made some points and we got a huge response from people from that it was kind of um so i was proud of how the reaction was there but i think for me, this was the the episode about dyslexia. Also, the episode was with Garagin about sign language, and yeah. I felt that like a lot of people, I learned so much, and I, I probably there are points where where Garagin and Caroline were chatting away, where I was just you know put picking my jaw up because I, I didn't know so many of these things. And I've uh, I have I have ISL using uh, colleagues now, and just even be even even be able to know those points and be able to start those conversations with them is it has been fantastic. It was a that was. I was grateful to be part of that. There was, there was, um, there was many, you know, episodes which I really loved, and the ISL one. I'm glad you mentioned that because it was, it was a fascinating one. Um, the, there was a really the the last episode I think was really, um, really interesting, and um, I, I found it quite like at the end I found it quite touching because of what you you know the amount of episodes you'd put out for, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, but. Um, the amount of information that you'd given to people and, and, and talking about that. And you could tell by the, it was just the three on for that one. 
Yeah. You could tell by uh, how close you were and how well you got on and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I and I can th- I can think of like, I'm sure this you know the the podcasts are. I'm not sure. Maybe I hope you're sure. <laughs> but but if the podcast could have gone on or was it like did had it reached the point then where it was just busyness and lives kind of taken over a bit? Yeah, it was. I think that there was a space for podcasts to go. I think on, on one level, when we we all had a fairly big career events last year, including our producer and our artist Kirsten, but also um, uh, Patter was is now mayor of South Dublin County Council, mm-hmm. and Ben Garrigan was in the process of finishing her thesis and to doing to do, applying the post postdoctoral work, and I was moving on to a different position of work as well. But I mean, even then in the group chat, we'd still say, "Oh, this this thing that's happening right now would make a great episode." And and yeah, there's, there's people turning up and just sort of like so. There's always things, but at some point, you know, I think it's okay to say that these things can, may not always last forever. We had a few, I had a few episode ideas which I really wanted to do, uh, which we didn't ever get around to. I wanted to do an episode on the cranberries, an episode on Seamus Heaney, an episode on you too, which um, we never got around to doing. And but at the same time, I mean. I suppose yeah. This if we did those, there were there were three or more episodes which would which I would have thought of doing at, at that point, which yeah. never would have happened. So it's a um, it's it's I think like um, it's pod, the podcast scene has changed a lot. And even when um, I was talking to Blind Boy in one of the last episodes, mm-hmm. and it was really interesting to get his perspective on on the podcast scene in Ireland because obviously he's done so very well. And he was saying, you know, if he was starting now, he probably wouldn't be able to get a foot in. Yeah. It would not have made the splash it's made it made at the time because it's become so crowded, particularly crowded with people who are already established in another field. Yeah. I um I uh the great thing about it as well about the podcast is that they're all still out there for people to mm-hmm. listen to. So people, if you haven't heard it, like definitely go back and listen to the podcast because it's absolutely fascinating. Um I'm just gonna read out an ad, Derek. Oh, yeah. And no you problem. uh have a have a drop of wine there and relax yourself. <laughs> okay, so Fusion Training Center, Monksland Athlone, a place to train in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, kickboxing, martial arts, and CrossFit. A great atmosphere with experienced coaches and a real sense of community. If you want to join the team, find us on Facebook at Fusion Training Center or drop in for a chat. Fusion Training Center, train like a warrior. Um, I haven't said this in a while, but like I'm 112 episodes in now and I still don't know it off my heart. And like, <laughs> you, I get, I get in like about 20, 20 words in and then I'll, I'll slip up. So I have to always bring out the copy book just, just in case, you know, yeah, um, exactly. So, um, the, so motherfucker, I'm sorry. I nearly said the bad word there. Motherfucker. <laughs> I do it every time. Motherfucker. So the, it's called motherfucker dispatches from a not so dead language. Yeah. Um, and why did you feel that that was the the correct uh, title for it? Well, initially, I suppose when well, uh, uh, to get back to the start, I suppose I talked about a bit how bad the book kind of um, began to happen, and I um, in that I was first of all, I suppose a, a few people had said when the Irish Four was kicking off, it, there was a few articles about it, and I'd been invited to write a little bit about it and things. There's radio features on it, and people said you you could probably get a book out of this, and I thought I don't think I could. Or maybe look at book, you know, buy an Irish dictionary. They're all pretty good. And then someone else said, you know, someone else can could use your use your translations, and you know, they you don't own the Irish language, and then no one can stop you. And thought, well, God, yeah, maybe I better get onto it. But um, so an agent did approach me, who who who, um, funnily enough, after Lisa McInerney had uh, had tweeted about how much she enjoyed the Irish for, um, um, 
an agent I could basically kind of start following me and got in touch and asked, you know, if I thought about it, that if I thought about doing a book based on it. And then when initially, and I had already been received correspondence from some publishers and, and I think they were like, you know, we can, we can just print out all your tweets, you know, in a book, in a book, you know, that we'll use, mm-hmm. we'll keep production costs low by printing on real sh- crappy paper and put a pint and a shamrock in the front and have, you know, the Irish four have it as a sell up in carols or wherever else. And I mean, yeah, no yeah. carols, yes, offense, no offense. But um, I thought, I thought when I explained to Sally Ann why I, you know, what the motivation behind the account was and if there was a family story there, she said, you know, that's, that's definitely something people would like to hear about. And then, and I, after that, when, when she submitted, I, I had written a, a kind of an introductory sort of 50 pages or so based on, you know, the spec of what the book would look like and while I was getting back to writing. And then uh, a few, I met a few publishers and they were saying, you know, okay, we like this, you know, or we think, you know, this would be good. We're just going to call it you know, maybe the, the Irish Four or we call it, you know, and Dara Crochet's introduction to the Irish language or something. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to... I want to underline how it's personal and how it's reverent and how also I'm not pretending to be a world expert. I'm trying to basically say, yes, that this is something that's, you know, um, I may have been a little bit influenced by Freakonomics, okay. which, um, but yeah, so I thought that um, Mother Folklore was funny and some of them said, uh, we don't like that. We think you could call it something else. Um, maybe something like Smuggle Our Own or something, even, you know, like a jellyfish. And I was like, mm. I, I mean, I I prefer to use the name, and then initially it was going to be your motherfucker dispatches from the Irish Four. As it when, when eventually we found Hella Zeus, who are a an independent publisher in in Britain, uh, with uh with an Irish Irish editor called Neil Belton, who is um very respected in the industry. My agent and my publisher are both Irish people living in London, so even though it was published in Britain, it was very much published by an Irish team, yeah, and. And Neil was like, you know, um, I love the title. It's fantastic. Let's go with that. And then, you know, and, and, and he actually, what, I re, what really impressed me is like, you know, this, I love this writing. This is fantastic. And you say he has a, a popular Twitter account as well. I was like, I, it never even occurred to me because I, I had been rejected so many times before radio plays and things like this and, you know, novel fairs and stuff like that, that the idea that I could just send something to a publisher and they just love it. You know, it, it, there have been so many gatekeepers and, but and uh, social media did, did open a door which, which which hadn't been there before. But then we talked about dispatches from the Irish Four, and then he, as they're happy with the name, and then we go th- during the production process. They're saying, you know, we don't, we don't, you don't need to pin this so closely to the Twitter account. You know, the book stands; it doesn't need to be, you know. And and you know, the further it gets from Twitter, the better. I think Neil Price. I don't think Neil even. Uh, knows or 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 they have like how how big and all pervasive social media is, and it's probably better for better for him to be away from it. Yeah, yeah. But um, so he's like, how about dispatches from a not quite dead language? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't like that. And I do, and I go, would you settle for not 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 so dead? Mm. And you know, I thought that was a little cheeky. Whereas not quite dead, just you know, there was a I didn't I didn't like the idea of dead language being there at all. So not so yeah. was um. Thing. And, it's, and yeah, some people didn't like the phrase "not not so dead" either. But there was a process, it, and the people who didn't like it didn't realize how hard I fought to make it exist. But yeah, so so when you generally speaking, you know, most people they, they get this, when when they get a shot at being at publishing, you, you generally roll over, and yeah. 
So fighting back, I mean, if, if most people um, don't love their title so much that they wouldn't see a book published. And, but I fought a little bit and I, I, I felt that not, not so dead language was a decent compromise. Absolutely. I think I actually, I love the title of it. I, I, you started the, the, the book with them, um, with Irish names, a list of uh, Irish yeah. names and their meaning. And, uh, it, you know, obviously I knew some of the names, not yeah. so much the meanings of the names, but it, it pulled me in because obviously we could relate to names. We hear names every day. A yeah. lot of those names we hear every day. But but as you as the, the book opened out, then there was there was the, the introduction of things like silent letters, um, yeah. and like you said, the the, the letters that aren't uh, that are in the English language and not in the Irish language, and all these kind of things, which like the father, you know, the pronunciation and things like that. Things not some things I had forgotten about. You know, the father thing, I guess, was probably one of them, but but the the silent letters and and the the, the Irish names and and all of a sudden this kind of beauty within this language, which I had disregarded like because of like we spoke about already the idea of Irish just being hard work was in school and didn't want to do it it became uh you know like I said the book there's this funniness and stuff throughout the book but there's I think you've introduced a kind of beauty of the Irish language to me and I hope I hope that was kind of part of what you wanted to do at least it was and I'm, I'm... Yes, I, I was hoping that I could just, you know, if we, if we step back from, I suppose, some of the particulars of learning, and I wasn't exactly necessarily trying to teach things. I wanted to say, if you look at it from this perspective, this thing might fall into place. And, you know, cause I think like a lot of people, like I remember in school, like we went back when things like the dentals rule and stuff are very, are, are useful and they're, they're good to know. But like I, we weren't told them, we were, we, like I, if, I remember thinking if, if, if a teacher just sat down and explained these things to me instead of, you know, just having this kind of um, bouts of repetition in the class or just having a, a total immersive environment. Some people just need things to be explained for two minutes and that's why I went. So, I, so in, in that sense, I thought have take, taking a few different angles and unpredictable angles to explain why something Irish goes this way was a worthwhile project and for me Irish names were are most people's only most people on the planet their own experience of the Irish language is an Irish name so I felt that was a good um introduction absolutely and so you talk uh, there's a there's a, a thread uh with your father throughout the, mm. the book um uh, just for people who may not have read the book what was the connection there between your dad and, and the Irish language yeah, so my dad was from from Kilmer and Kerry, and he he actually was he was a multilingual man. He spoke many languages, and he was very interested in languages all his life. Even and in his eighties, when we were, when uh, when he when he died, he was actually trying to teach himself Cantonese after just maybe speaking. Yeah, and and he had kind of um conversational Arabic, a bit of Japanese as well as um as well as teaching Irish and French French and Spanish in an Irish language school, and having kind of lived in France for a while and. And learned all these other languages as, as well as the Latin speaking to everyone. So he and for a guy who knew all these languages, I was wondering why did Irish mean the most to him? And you know, if you, if you knew as many as these, you'd probably would have a favorite. And it was as interesting as it was this one. And then I suppose yeah, it became a kind of a, a conversation starter at that point when I realized we only had so many conversations left. Mm. And you know, as Irish men being what we are, we don't talk a lot. We couldn't just talk directly about our feelings or anything like that. We could, we could talk possibly about Irish words. That that is, yeah. I I, I like. It's beautiful that the, the you know Irish was his was his favorite language, and I've had a couple of guests on who who, who were obviously 
speak Irish fluently. And they described the idea of it as being uh, quite grounding. To, uh, they were, it felt that they were grounded to the land that they were on. Does that make sense to you? It does. And I know some people have, have that experience. And, you know, if, if, if they, their, their experience of the Irish language is something that's connected to nature or farming words or landscape words. And it wasn't quite like that for me. And I didn't, like, it wasn't a case that I was working, like I was cutting turf and that, that my dad was shouting at me that one, there was a word for the turf water and a different word for the dry turf to the wet turf. And that was not my experience in Rathfarnham. And, but I mean, my, so yeah, the, the experience probably did come from like being teased about having an unusually spelt Irish name and and those kinds of things and the weird kind of um uh tribal nature of the Dublin school system and and the very subtle and strange layers of of the class system in Dublin and how you know that there's different types of um like people are constantly giving very small class indicators and you don't even realize if you, what you're showing and what you're hiding all the time. Yeah. And yeah, which is highly stressful. And course, probably yeah. not probably not good for anyone no but, not absolutely not yeah but it's and it's weird that that irish names have somehow found themselves into, into this mix of you know the of of um of the double class system that some people think oh this means you're very middle class and some people think no it means you're not middle class at all like i mean it's um it was a funny one because like yeah, in gonzaga like if you had an all Irish name, it meant yes, that maybe your parents were teachers or civil servants or possibly a creative barrister. But like, really? whereas, whereas people whose names were on the you know company directors and stuff tended not to have Irish language names. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. That has been a huge thing. Where, as a joke, you will hear a lot of people say in a in a particular. Uh, we'll say area of Dublin where they might say it, it the accent of the and the, the Irish name that goes along with it. Uh, yeah, as, here comes little Faulkner or something. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that kind of stuff. It's kind of it's interesting how it's shifted in in those terms. But um in the the second book then, Crack Baby, it there's a slight change or maybe a, a sense of more optimism more in the title of Dispatches from a Rising Language. And and yeah. between writing the two books um, was that something that you did see, or was that did you, was that always on your mind that there was, uh, you know, a, a difference between the two? I suppose I think I wanted the. I suppose when I was writing Crack Baby, it was uh, I suppose at an early stage of. Um, well, I suppose I was I was coming off the high of the of motherfucker doing so well, and I suppose that the context was this successful enough to have another uh, another bracket at and and I suppose it was it was looking forward to where where Irish language was going, what was what was happening next, and. And yeah, I suppose and in that sense, it was, I was wondering where, where I was trying to put a positive spin and particular, and I was conscious also that, you know, I never really wanted to have dead language in the, in the title of the previous <laughs> one. So it was a little correction to that. And I think, yeah, so I felt like I was, I parted, I was very happy with parts of Crack Baby. I think maybe when you do a debut, debut novel or a debut album, there's a certain, you get a, there's a certain completeness as possible. that isn't always possible in a second. And I think, yeah, this is why people often like like debut novels and debut albums more than the later ones, even if the later ones have better bits, because the, you actually get a, you can get a stronger sense of a start, middle, and end. Whereas I think I'd probably, um, yeah, I, I felt that the, the good bits of Crack Baby were better than the good bits of Motherfucker, but possibly Motherfucker Gel better as a book. Okay. Uh, I, I finished Crack Baby. Um the day before yesterday and okay. um um what 
I, I, I kind of see what you're saying, but at the same time, there, there was a re- I, I love the fact that your daughter was a, a was a, you know, a, a talking point within more mm. than a talking point within the within the book, and your idea of maybe looking to the future uh, that came up quite a lot in it. Um, can you actually? Would you mind pronouncing your daughter's name? Yeah, my daughter's name is Lasarina, and it, it yeah. looks more it it looks more complicated to me mm-hmm. than it sounds now. You spelled it out phonetically so I could yeah. get it, but it's it's such a beautiful name that I that I hadn't heard before. And mm-hmm. I, the, I I loved I I don't know whether it, I'm sure it was just the way um, that you you're able to express yourself very well when it came to your daughter and when at the the start of the book and at the end of the book when you spoke about her um, and about communicating and that was mm-hmm. a big thing when you communicate with a child um, and I guess that's a huge part for you now approaching as Lasarina grows older. It's the English language and the Irish language is going to be a massive thing for her mm-hmm. and for you. And is that something that kind of like, I suppose how much, how big is that a thing for you for Lasarina to be yeah. native yeah, for, speaker? Well, for, for me, the big thing, I suppose, because I suppose Lasarina has dance and German because uh, language is always going to be a struggle for her. I mean, most important thing for me is that she's able to communicate I would like her to know that the Irish language is available to her. Uh, it's, it's, it's a place that will be welcome to her. But the priority is that she's actually just able to express herself. Mm-hmm. And I think possibly in the process of dealing with the shock of finding out that your child has a, a profound disability like Down syndrome is that you deal with it in different ways. First of all, you get to the stage of denial and then you enter a unhelpful but necessary and strange stage where, where you think, well, maybe my child will be an exception instead of actually accepting what the disability is. You think, well, yes, my, my child has this disability, but maybe they will be exceptional and not like what, what, what the normal is for what the normal situation is for a person with this. And that's not actually, and while that's all very, you know, all children are exceptional and capable of great things. It, that's, it's still not, you still haven't reached the acceptance stage of that. And I think it's true that say like, well, we've been really lucky with last his health. And unless she hasn't had the health issues that a lot of a lot of people and a lot of children with um, with a trisomy twenty one not have, but I mean, I suppose like we'd still be at a stage where you know her, her communication is such that maybe that bilingualism isn't just isn't a priority compared to getting getting there. It's um that's yeah it's 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 been a hard journey getting getting to that point, but ultimately um, all that matters is right for her, and I hope that I mean if, if that that she will that that she will be in mainstream school long enough to actually have some Irish and and enjoy it and mm-hmm. find it find it to be something to be interesting, but it's um, I I'm not going to try and make a point to the world by um, by showing everyone oh look if she can do it anyone else can or something like that yeah. uh, so that's the thing I mean I think it's um, She's been doing. She's in, she's in a mainstream school, which is fantastic. Uh, which and she's yeah, she's got like friends in class, and she's um, friends in the area, and she's very and she loves going to school. And so the, the, these things are great. And yeah. I don't take any of it for granted. Uh, but I suppose I think possibly yes, if I waited a year for before I will crack baby to survive straight after when when she was still so young, when look, these, a lot of these things were were new to me. I think it may have been a better resource if I'd known more about how that, that, that life experience was going to be. Yeah. But, mm. I am. Um, 
I just found it very touching the way you wrote about it, uh, uh, you know, about you spoke about finding out and, and, and yourself and your um, partner. And, but at the end of the book, it was, it was kind of like you'd be come through not, and I, I kind of suppose I'd have to see this from where I see it as a reader mm-hmm. yeah. of how you'd come through something uh, the way it did. And obviously your experiences are something completely different than what you're yeah. talking about, but you were mm-hmm. still able to put them across to someone who hasn't experienced, you know, I don't have mm-hmm. children or anything like that. I haven't experienced anything like that. So, you know, not only were you, you know, pointing stuff out in the Irish language, you're pointing stuff out in a journey as a, as a, you know, a father, someone who's found out they're going to be a father and then someone who's become a father. And those kind of personal touches within the book, I you can talk about the Irish language language. You can talk about having fun and stuff, but the personal touches in both books are really touching as well to someone uh, to a reader. So, uh, you know, that's just another uh, part of why I love them so much, you know? Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. It was, uh, I think, yeah, because it is general. Like the the return to Irish is is it's personal. It's a um, you know you you're, you're taking risk or you're risking making an ass of yourself, and you're returning to these kind of weird childhood memories, and you're and, and entering a world where maybe both people are very comfortable. You're not, so it is. I think it has to be a personal journey. It has to be told as a personal journey. That was my my feeling on it anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. So you seem to be very interested in etymology in general, though. Is that would that be fair to say? I think, yeah, I, I am interested in, in words in general yeah. and where they come from. And and I suppose, yeah, I was particularly I was interested in the English language of Ireland and how much of that comes from, how much of that just comes from Irish, but also how much of it comes from just, you know, slightly different usage and mm. and little things, and particularly the slight regional differences. And I, I found this even from when I was a teenager in school, um, I had different schools and slightly different slang, slang words and things for things. Yeah. And then and you'd find this in, you know, in, in Irish college or with cousins that people use. And I, was, I remember always wondering where those boundaries were, where these actually you know, new words kind of stopped and began. It was one, uh, the, the, your episode that you did with Blind Boy, and I know he, he he's a big fan of etymology as well. Like, and he, he tends to speak about it quite a lot on his own show. And you, you kind of got into that kind of flow state that he talks about quite a lot where you were just yeah. kind of going and there was, a, you know, that's where I kind of, where I, you know, saw that you were into etymology in general, but you started talking about Flann O'Brien and you, you mentioned Flann O'Brien before. And I, Flann O'Brien has, has been a writer who have, I've heard like, you know, you hear about a lot about Flann O'Brien. Yeah. Um, but I've never read any of his books, shamefully. Um, what is it about Flann O'Brien that, you know, that you like so much? I think I, mean, I got a copy of um, an anthology of his journalism when I was on holidays in, as a teenager. And I remember just being blown away at the fact that there was, a real, there was a sense of freedom that he wasn't actually following any particular rules. He was just writing whatever the hell he wanted. And mm. when I found that Swim Two Birds after that, it was a sense that he just wrote whatever he wanted. And and basically, there was he had this total freedom, and it wasn't a case of you know books having start starts, middles, and ends, or um, or anything at all. It was just a sense that he just was letting his brain run loose and and go go to crazy places. And some of it was just like silly puns and like large stories spinning spinning into silly puns. Some of it was um comedy. Some of it was reviews. Some of it was Irish mythology, and some of it was just scathing observational humor. And and he just did so with um with this real sense of Kate with um, a sense of mischief. And, and I just found, yeah, there was something, something I was aspired to. Is it because in your description there, like 
is it is it accessible? Is it you know? And and when I say that, I suppose I'm kind of talking about someone like James Joyce, where everybody is overwhelmed by the way Joyce, you know, writes. Is it is it is it more accessible than I Joyce? Consi- I would consider it more accessible than Joyce. Yes. Okay. Um, um, the, I would start if, if someone was in well as wants to introduce an, an introduction to Miles and Buffalo and Northman O'Brien, I'd say yes. The the best of Miles is a compilation of his Kushkin Lawn uh, articles for the Irish Times. That's very extremely accessible and very funny, and that's where I'd start. And if you like that, you'll probably have a have a good shot at Swim Two Birds, which is a modernist book. Which mm-hmm. so it is, you know, it's a little challenging. Then you might find some people also find like the third policeman to be a, a maybe more accessible way in as well. Yeah, because again, it's just you know when you keep hearing about something or someone and you keep thinking oh, I'm definitely going to read that and you t- and as you kind of push back push back and I like I've continue and will continue to push back against Ulysses because you know there's there isn't enough time in the world for that but uh, <laughs> even though look I understand it's a classic I get it uh, fair enough but um so what do you like to do um in your spare time Derek well I mean I suppose yeah <laughs> Um, I don't have a huge amount of spare time with two small small kids and a job and working the third book. It's uh, it generally every, everything gets scoffed up pretty quickly, I suppose. I mean, yeah, it's just um, any what, what time I have left. I mean, I do like to um, yeah, do like to snuggle up with my wife and a glass of wine and maybe watch Boston television. We watched um, best TV show I watched recently was Yellow Jackets. I thought that was outstanding. Uh, I saw an ad for it, or maybe you know, like you know, when you're scrolling through your sky and it's just got the little picture. Maybe it was the little picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did hear a lot of good stuff about that one. So I think it's something I've noticed more and more, and you'll you'll, you'll notice that when when um, you'll notice that when you when you when you when you hit your forties, is suddenly the stuff that was popular. That's May, by the way. That's May. Just okay. <laughs> the, the stuff that was popular when you were a teenager suddenly teenagers are, in, are into it in a flashback way. Because I went out in the nineties, was a huge seventies throwback. You had yeah. films like Carly Lowe's Way and. And things like that, and like the soundtrack to Reservoir Dogs, both fiction was mm. very 70s leaning, and you had like 70s fashions, you had Red Pop was emulating Bowie and things like that, and you then Schmerker was, was was copying Stevie Wonder, and you had a um and now you're getting a lot of this kind of nineties yeah, and early noughties throwback stuff. And it's and Yellow Jackets was, was it, it has a, a look back to this was um a bunch of teenagers Europe who are stranded in in the Canadian Rockies. Well, during the nineties, and and how the survivors are are now oh, looking okay. back about that time, and so it's there's a lot of um, I suppose observational because um, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, the the recreation of the nineties parts is extremely accurate and and, and rings very true. Mm. So I found that was very very interesting. And I try not to watch too much television. I certainly I never watch television on my own. I only ever really watch it with um with herself, yeah. and then I do. I, I, try, I try to read as much as I can because what little time um, mm. I have. So I, I listen to audiobooks and I and I listen to a lot of audiobooks when I'm commuting. And I like I've been and I'm tra- I've read some 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 very good graphic novels recently. I found that in terms of actually getting through a lot of reading, I found there's um a book, there's, a, there's a Canadian writer called Walter Scott who's written a couple of um he's same name as a more famous writer which is always mm. dangerous yeah. but he's written a series of books uh, called uh, the wendy wendy's revenge and wendy master of art which are about an art student in montreal in canada and just this this and this this how this you know crazy self-destructive um art art student who, al- who almost gets her life together and then pulls right back <laughs> each each uh, book and there's um 
outstanding. I just want to find someone else who's read them who I can talk to them about because they're absolutely brilliant. Um, so there's a, a book, another book I read recently, which is outstanding, is um, Tunnels by Rutu Modan, which is it's a graphic novel about the um, the search for the lost ark, but it's set in modern day Israel and Palestine, and in that the political contexts of those those countries in the right now. And so you think you're you think you're getting a great Indiana Jones story, which you're actually getting a kind of a a satirical take on a very complex political situation, which is okay. fantastic. I do you know it's funny when he, I suppose it's kind of an uh, an older kind of uh, an old fashioned view of graphic uh, novels is that they don't uh, discuss the the larger topics, and <laughs> uh, and then yeah. you kind of find out by through friends, I would say, um, mm. that. That is definitely not the case. I know Mouse is, is a huge, uh, hugely pop, popular graphic novel, but you know, um, yeah, I realized uh, quite quickly that that I was really out of touch with that kind of thing. You know, there's some outstanding stuff, and particularly for I think find for people with busy lives who've got themselves in a reading rush, and you know, it's it's very easy to fall out of the habit of reading, and then and kind of hard to find your way back. I found that. The, the possibility of finishing something in, in a single reading was um, was quite enticing to me. And it did. And once you break that cycle and it's, you suddenly become an obsessive reader again, which is, you know, which is great. And I think that's where we all want to be. Oh, absolutely. Um, can you tell us anything about your uh, third book? Well, yeah, so it's, it's the third book has emerged from the ashes of, I had been writing a historical novel which collapsed on itself. I painted myself into a corner. Okay. which happens a lot in writing. And I have been writing, working on a book about the story behind Ragland Road, the beloved song and poem uh, by Paddy Kavanaugh, which was not considered one of his best poems during his lifetime, but very much has been brought to, to the public imagination because of Luke Kelly's version of the song. And Kavanaugh had written this about a, a young woman called Hilda Moriarty, who was a medical student in in Dublin around the time that uh, he was um, he was doing his rounds, Kavanaugh had had some very success with his first book and then was floundering for a while doing film reviews and stuff. People always forget that Kavanaugh was a film critic. He wanted to be a film director. Oh, did he? And, well, yeah, he wanted. I mean, he was, mm. he was, he'd been promised these things. But um, And they had a friendship which, you know, kind of didn't really go where, but then she ended up marrying Don O'Malley, who was went on to become the Revolutionary Minister of Education and made secondary school free. And oh, wow. so I, I, I thought there was a story in this um, this love triangle. Then when I was looking into it, I found that um, you know that O'Malley and Archbishop McQuaid kind of hate, hated each other and were 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 basically always at odds with each other. And meanwhile, uh, Kavanaugh had a strange court jester relationship with Archbishop McQuaid. And I thought this is um, an interesting you know you've got, so you've got the, what was love triangles now a hate quadrangle and, <laughs> okay. and then but I found then as I was working on it I thought that like um I didn't want to really want to write a redemption arc story about a female politician I didn't want to basically and Kavanaugh was probably not like I didn't want to do a yeah he, he treated people quite badly and I felt, felt that like it's um yeah certainly his behavior was um was shabby but I did find from the from the ruins of my research, I found some other incredible, um, incredible stories about the about the mid-century um, literacy in Ireland, and I, that's that's going to be the basis of my next book. 
Brilliant. Um, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, I have to ask you this because you did mention in one of your books that you liked films. Uh, yes. Yeah. Just something I do. Um, a couple of your favorite films off the top of your head. Off the top of my head, my, yeah. my favorite, my favorite film, I think um, my favorite experience in the cinema was Back to the Future when I was a kid. Really? I think Back to the Future is an outstanding film. And even though, yes, it's not perfect, I do love it very much. And I like big, I like big kind of um, 90s action films. Um, okay. I, think, I think Point Break is a masterpiece. Very, and, very good. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I and if Roadhouse is ever on, I always watch it. I've know? never seen Roadhouse, actually. Surprisingly. Oh, it's I think yeah, but then this was I, I would also say now I think um I love the film Roman Holiday, which I remember oh, thinking yeah. when I saw that, I remember thinking just it's, it's it and it's, it's weird to think that film is so old as that that Audrey Hepburn's character was loosely based on Queen Elizabeth or, or whatever she was called back then. It was um it was that far back. Wow. And I think possibly I think the best screenplay and what and probably one of my favorite directors and one of the, and it's and Sally I think when Harry met Sally I just think that there's like that I mean there's just just brilliant scene after brilliant scene quotable line after quotable line and just two amazing performances um when Harry met Sally came late to me actually um mm-hmm. I don't really know why to be honest but you know I maybe it's about five years ago so I was about 34 35 when I watched it and it was one of those ones where it was like, geez, you know what? It was a it was a huge surprise to me just how good it was because you it's one of those films, it's iconic that you know some of the lines, you know, the, uh, the, yeah. the diner scene and stuff. But um when I watched it, I was like, Oh, I can I you understand. And it's the same, like people would have told me that uh don't go near point break. Yeah. Just not they loved it, but they would have thought I wouldn't have liked it. And I again, I probably avoided it for a good while. And then when I watched it, I was like, "Oh, that that's a class film!" Like you know, and it's. I think it's yeah. It it, it takes you by surprise because it's mm-hmm. you know, it, like there's every scene is is there for a reason. It's just it's you know it's it's like a it's like a Swiss watch of an action mm-hmm. film. Everything every piece is working well, and also it it does kind of um, contradict some of your expectations of how these kind of films normally go. It's a uh, I suppose that there's something from having a female director, possibly, you know, you, is how the the actual the, some of those stories um, were handled differently than maybe if it had made made by uh, one of those other big um, big kind of 80s action 90s action film directors. Yeah, it, there's, a, there's 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 a there's a more depth of emotion to it than you'd expect with this kind of buddy kind of are all not buddy but all male kind of uh, cast i suppose especially yeah. at the of the time that's the thing i think i, I think when you have a specific female director and a mostly male cast it's almost like she's looking at men as as strange creatures and just mm. like the, all, all, it's almost like a kind of a richard attenborough just, just um <laughs> documentary about yeah. men as a specific thing and not as a, these the normal normal way of being just um which I think is quite interesting. It it is, and it's it's fascinating to see where where Catherine Bigelow has gone mm-hmm. uh, afterwards to see how big she has become and 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 some of the films, the unbelievable films that she, she has made. Um, Derek, uh, where can people find you? Well, um, yeah, so I I'm on the Irish Foreign Twitter. I have a personal account, Derek OS, as well, which is um. I occasionally talk nonsense on, and yeah, so the podcast is is still available if people want to find it. That's on called Motherfucker, and it's uh, wherever you get podcasts. And I occasionally write for the journal as well. Thank you so much. It uh, I was really um, delighted when you said you'd come on, um, and I was so 
thrilled, like I said to you earlier, that I was able to fit both books in. And uh, before I could get to chat to you, so I get a fully rounded version. Um, uh, Derek, uh, would you mind hanging around for just a minute? Um, I'll, just, I'll close it out and we'll get a quick photo and um, we'll, uh, we'll be on our way, all right? Definitely. Thank you, Derek. Uh, I also want to thank the usual people, but I, I will always name them John for his uh, technical support, Nathan for the promotional side of things. We are, uh, it's showing a lot of benefits and uh, we thank him for that. Um, I thank the people who helped me get here and do this and my mom my dad my granddad Jaron Calvin subscribe to our YouTube channel if you would or on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter all those places I know I, yeah, I say this every week Spotify Apple Anchor Google Podcasts still probably wouldn't even remember the, uh, to say how this stuff like, <laughs> but, uh, but, but uh, like as I say every week thanks to everyone for tuning in and Derek once again thank you so much my absolute pleasure thanks so much I, uh, I loved it uh, everybody else as the name is in the title. See you next week. Um, Take care of yourselves. Bye.